0: So we have the privilege this morning of gathering to celebrate God's grace. We've sung much of it this morning about God's grace, God's mercy. We've, we've heard it through the confession of sin. And we remember that the church is not a self, self-improvement machine. It's not a behavior modification machine. It's not a place you come so that you can be a better you. It's not a place you come so that you can be a more functioning member of society. These things do happen. But the church is a, a place of recognition. It's a place of meditation on what God has done for us in Christ. We remember just as the Israelites, when they heard the Ten Commandments, that all the imperatives, all the commands... All of the things we ought to do and will be called to do from Scripture flow out of who God is and what he's done for us through Christ. And so it is fitting this morning that we sing much of God's grace, his undeserved favor towards us. We don't deserve anything from God, but he gives us everything in Christ and his mercy that he sees us in a pit of despair, affliction, and he comes to us in compassion and pity and reaches out and pulls us up out of the pit. His mercy. Today we come to our next to last sermon on the book of Genesis. So today is not the last sermon on Genesis, but it is the next to last. And if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 49... And we'll be looking at Genesis 49, verse 29, all the way through to chapter 50, verse 14. And then we will finish next week, Lord willing, with verses 15 all the way to 26, to the end of the book. The book that began with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll end next week with, so Joseph died... Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt, awaiting the exodus, which we won't turn to after Genesis, but which many of you have studied, even recently in the women's ministry. Uh, But I would encourage you, this would be a good time to pick up. And start reading through, when we finish Genesis, to start reading through Exodus. And see, if you're unfamiliar with it, where the story goes. And Exodus would be a great place to do that. Go ahead and read through all of Exodus. And that will give you a sense for what God builds on Genesis with. The actions of God after Genesis. And how he constitutes a people. And gives them the sacrificial system. How he redeems them from Egyptian slavery. But we're not quite there yet to the end. So today, as we go up through verse 14 of chapter 50, the title for the sermon is The Passing of the Patriarch. Today, we look at the death of Jacob. We've seen the death of Abraham and Isaac, and today we come to the death of Jacob. Since Genesis chapter 12, we have walked alongside of these three patriarchs, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, throughout the Bible, God will refer to himself this way. That's who this God is. If you're a Christian, that's who your God is. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And we've walked alongside of these patriarchs. We, we've seen God be the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. We've seen God reveal himself to these men. We've seen him Make promises to them and watch over them. Protect them, bless them, prosper them. Even in many cases, protect them from themselves. And we've seen these patriarchs respond to God in faith. And that's one of the reasons we've continually returned to these two themes of faithfulness and faith. The the big themes of Genesis. God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and man's response to that. Which is faith. And we've seen this in the patriarchs. But we have not seen this faith perfectly, but we have seen it truly. And there is a distinction, right? The patriarchs do not trust. God perfectly. We can go back to Abraham and the Hagar incident. Or we can go back to Abraham going into Egypt. We see Isaac with his son Esau. And just the blindness. The moral blindness that he has. And the favoritism that he has. We've seen all kinds of things with Jacob. Going back to the beginning. The trickery. And and the way that he treats his wives. And the way he favors his sons. We've seen his passivity. And we've seen that deception come back to bite him. So certainly these patriarchs have not trusted God perfectly, but they have trusted God truly. They are true, authentic, genuine believers. And I just think we need to recognize with this that there are no perfect believers There is not a single perfect believer who has ever lived. Each of us is a fallen sinner. A sinner saved by grace. And we see in the epistles, Paul is is constantly uh, communicating to the churches to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And and to not uh, carry out the desires of the flesh. And to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. There are no perfect believers. But there are... True believers. And so I just want to ask you, as you've been coming, are you a true believer? I know you're not a perfect believer. None of us is. But are you a true believer? Today, as we consider this faith once again, would be a wonderful time to call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will Be saved. No one who calls out to him, no one who comes to him, Jesus says, he will turn away. No one who believes in him, Paul says in Romans 10, will be put to shame. So call out to him today. Trust him as your God through Christ. You will not be a perfect believer, but be a true believer in this God. We saw from Abraham onwards, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis 15, 6, which talks of him being a believer. And he believed the Lord. Abraham truly trusted God's word by grace, by the Holy Spirit's grace working in his heart. We know it's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tells us that faith, the whole complex of salvation, everything that goes into it, love for God, fear of God, trust in God, all of it, a gift from the Holy Spirit. But Abraham did believe. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. This was the case with Isaac and this was the case with Jacob after him. The patriarchs have shown us that faith is trust in the word of God. One of the things that personally I have found so enlightening as I've been going through Genesis myself as a Christian is... The, the need to rely on the rock-solid Word of God and not our feelings. I am tempted uh, to, to oftentimes relate to God very much in terms of, of my feelings, in terms of my experiences, in terms of my circumstances of, uh, associated with my relationship with Him. How's it going? How am I feeling it out? Maybe that's you. You're tempted to go down that road as well. And one of the things that God has has done in my own heart. As we've gone through Genesis. Is he has reminded me that faith is trusting God's word. Regardless of how you feel. You may go through long periods of dryness. Where you don't feel God. Where you don't feel zealous for God. You don't have the intensity of those affections for God. But you trust his word. Isn't marriage a picture of that? We have in marriage not a call to stick to it as long as we feel like we did on our honeymoon. Nope. That's not how it works. We have a call to trust, to be faithful, to be trustworthy, that is, to be faithful to a vow, a pledge, a covenant, a commitment, whether we feel it all the time or not. And no one feels it, whatever that is, all the time. But we stay in it. Because it is a covenant. And we are in covenant with God. We, we look to the word of God as rock solid. And we have full confidence in that. And so, I want you to consider that our time walking along with the patriarchs, I hope, Has heightened our view of Scripture and our commitment to it. And here's the thing I hope that it has convinced you that without Scripture, your Christian life will be shambles. Your Christian life will just sputter along. God's not going to magically appear in your life and give you a a path for success and prosperity in your Christian life, spiritually speaking, apart from His Word. It's never gonna happen. He's never just going to show up and make things great for you spiritually with a dusty Bible. You must hear him and you must trust him as you hear him. Is that not the experience of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob? So pull out that copy of the Holy Scriptures and hear, Christian. Hear the voice of your God. Trust him and obey him. Last week, we saw Jacob in faith give his final words of blessing to his 12 sons. He tells them what will happen in the future. It's prophecy, but also he speaks to them as a father, as a patriarch of the nation, as a father, and as a prophet. Judah will be preeminent. And from his tribe... Will come the great king who will rule all and bring humanity back to Eden. Back to paradise. The whole story of the Bible found in Genesis 49 verses 8 to 12. Even what we find at the end of Revelation being pointed to there. That's Judah, Joseph will experience extraordinary prosperity and the protection of God. And this prosperity of protection will be shared by the other sons. And so we see little glimmers of it in Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin. By contrast, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi will be punished for their grievous sins. Reuben, uh, sleeping with his Father's concubine and Simeon and Levi massacring an entire village. Even cruelly mistreating the animals there. Why? Because they are taking vengeance for what was done to their sister. Although, as sons of Jacob, they still will be blessed. And so it is appropriate at the end of the blessing we looked at last week in verse 28. That that everything Jacob says to his sons is a blessing. He blesses them as the offspring of the blessed one. But they are punished. And with these prophetic words of blessing firmly in place, which is where we're at now, we come to the passing of the patriarch at the end of chapter 49. So if you would please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 49, verse 29, to chapter 50, verse 14. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Then he commanded them and said to them, this is Jacob, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. In the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. We haven't read about that, that's not recorded, but he, now he's telling us. At some point, he buried Leah there as well. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. This is mummification, what they're doing to Jacob's body. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying... My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. That's incredible. As well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's grace to rightly communicate and rightly understand what he has for us here in this text. Father, I love that song, Speak, O Lord, by the Gettys. Thank you for that song and so many others that they have produced. Father, this is food for us. We've seen many different kinds of texts, passages in Genesis. Many different types of writing narratives with lists and genealogies and descriptions and instructions. We've seen theophanies, appearances of you, God. We've seen descriptions of man's actions and the interactions between human beings, the interactions between parents and children, children and parents, among brothers, husband and wife. We've had so many different kinds of passages, Lord, and each of them food for us, your people. God, we thank you that we have, once again, a meal pointing towards that meal we will share with the incarnate Word Himself in glory. When His kingdom comes in full splendor, We will dine with him. We will feast upon him in his very presence in our bodies. And until that day, Father, we look to your written word as our guide, as the story of your redemptive purposes. And in each text, we have food for our souls. And so, Father, we pray now that you would speak, that you would feed us and that we would listen, that you would help us. Maintain our attention, God, that your spirit would prick our hearts, that you would bring conviction and comfort where it is needed and the way it is needed, that you would build up your holy people, your saints. We pray that you draw sinners to yourself today, those who do not know you, those who are unconverted, who are in a state of rebellion against you, God. We pray that your spirit would break those chains and break that will bent on self And that self-love would be replaced with love of God and love of neighbor. We pray that you would do this among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things to look at this morning as we go through the passing of the patriarch. Very simple here, his death and his burial. That's what we have in this text, very straightforward. So that's what we will spend our time looking at. So first, his death, Jacob's death. The report of Jacob's death comes at the end of verse 33. This is what it says. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now this language of being gathered to his people... Is what we saw with both Abraham and Isaac. We, we've seen this language before. Abraham gathered to his people. Isaac and now Jacob gathered to their people. Chapter 25 verse 8. Chapter 35 verse 29. It is the language of afterlife. It is a, a way of referring to death among the Hebrews. But it does not come without the theology of continuation. That after death the soul lives on. We see it played out similarly in the New Testament in Luke chapter 16 verse 22. Jesus tells the story of a wretched poor man who has nothing named Lazarus and he dies but he is in the Lord. He trusts in God and he's taken off and we have another man who is filled with riches and his soul is filled with pride and, and a lack of care for the poor. And he is carried off to hell. And this is what Jesus says about the poor man, Luke 16. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Brother, sister in Christ, That's what you can expect at the hour of your death. What amazing glory that the angels of God, whom we've never seen, and in the Bible, every time an angel appears, people fall down and are tempted to worship them. Those very angels, in the hour of your death, when your heart stops beating and your brain waves stop going, they will carry you to God. What an amazing thing. Praise God that we have these assurances. And it reminds us, this language, that this life, with all of its concreteness, right before us, we can smell it and we can taste it. We can feel it. We hear it. We see it. It's concrete. It's real. With all of its concreteness, is not all there is. And in fact we might even say it is, it is but a dot. In all of the existence that we will have for eternity. As the last verse of amazing grace. When we've been there for 10,000 years. It will be as nothing. It's a speck. It's a dot. This concrete earthly existence that just feels so real. And there's nothing else. There is more. And it will come as the people of God are gathered to their people. Although this report of Jacob's death is brief, I want us to spend some time looking at the circumstances surrounding it. So three things, you can write these down if you wish. Three things to help us unlock here what is going on with Jacob's death. So here they are, the command, the grief, And the honor. These are the three circumstances surrounding Jacob's death. So first, the command. Look at verses 29 to 33 at the end of chapter 49. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. "...which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people." You notice in verse 29, we have the verb command, then he commanded. And you notice in verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding. So that's the first circumstance surrounding his death is this command. We have already seen Jacob tell his son Joseph that he wants to be buried in Canaan. You remember back in chapter 47, verses 29 to 30, Jacob made Joseph swear He had him put his hand under his thigh, which was a a sign there. Abraham did that, remember, with his servant that he would, he swore that he would not take a Canaanite wife for Isaac and that he would not take Isaac to Canaan, I mean, away from Canaan. We see the same language there. Joseph swears to his father, I swear to you, father, that I will not bury you here in Egypt, but I will bury you in Canaan. So why the repetition here? I mean, Jacob has already had this conversation. He's already sealed the deal with Joseph. Here, Jacob makes this desire public by commanding all of his sons to do this. Not because he doubts that Joseph will get the job done. Of course, Joseph will get the job done. That's what we've seen all along with Joseph. He's the faithful son and he's the diligent servant. Of course, Joseph's going to make sure that this happens. So it's not that Jacob doubts that Joseph will do it. And so he has to tell the other sons just to make sure. He does this because he wants to make a public statement to his descendants as a collective whole. Not a private oath. No mere private oath will do. But a household witness, listen to this, a household witness to all of his sons, representative of the nation. A household witness of his faith in God's promises. That is what Jacob is doing here. Bring me back to that land that God promised to give to us. My sons, all of you, bring me back there. And notice here, with meticulous detail and repetition, you almost get the impression, okay, we got it. He gives all this geographical detail. It's like, it's so clear. Okay, we've got it. Meticulous detail and repetition. He clearly identifies where and with whom he wants to be Buried. This is the place Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite back in chapter 23. So in case you were wondering why in the world did we read Genesis 23 for our scripture reading this morning. It's for that reason. Mark was reading it setting up the background for what we're seeing here. That was when Abraham initially bought that cave from the Hittites at the death of his wife Sarah. That's the place. This is the place where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and his wife Leah are buried. One of the things that's fascinated me, and this isn't made much of in the scriptures, but it's just something that, that is in my mind, is those, that those, that is the foundation for the line of Christ. It just so happens that it, it's not Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and his beloved wife Rachel who are buried in that cave. But it is Leah through whom came Judah and through whom came the Christ. In other words, you have in that cave those bones, that rotting flesh there in that cave the foundations for the Christ who will come. That's the patriarchal Foundations of the line of the Deliverer. The one promised to Adam and Eve. Who would undo sin and death and bring us back to paradise. This command is the last act of a dying man. We should probably pay attention. When we come across the last thing a person does before he or she dies. Especially if he or she knows Death is coming. These are his last words, and they are words of faith that will ring in the ears of God's people for generations. I want to read you a quote from a commentator named Alan Ross. This is what he says The death and burial of a believer provides one of the greatest opportunities to demonstrate the abiding faith in the future promises. What a wonderful display the death of a believer is in the truth of God's plan. The truth of God's existence. The truth of God's grace in a human heart. That's what we have here. A demonstration of the abiding faith in the future promises. So I want to ask you a question. Are you preparing now for this kind of death? You know, I know it sounds weird, especially in our culture, but every day is a preparation for dying well. It's coming. It's coming. And we pray that when that time comes, no matter how well we eat or how much exercise we do, it's going to happen. And when that time comes, when death comes for each of us, we want to die well as a testimony to the truthfulness of God and His glory. And we want to die well so that those who come after us will see and their faith will be fortified and buttressed against the enemy. Are you preparing now for this kind of faithful death? Even if you're a teenager... Even if you're a child, a death that will not be wasted. Don't waste your death. I was reading some time ago from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. There's a little book I have where a work of his is edited. I believe it's by Joel Beaky. If you haven't read some of Joel Beakey's stuff, you should. He's uh, loves the Puritans and puts out a lot of Re- Reformation Heritage Trust, I think is what it is. But he, it's a, a publishing house that puts out a lot of Puritan works. And one of the little works I have is about Thomas Goodwin, but it's also snippets of his work. And I remember I was going to bed one night and I just picked that book up. Cause I have way too many books on my nightstand. And I picked that book up and I was just flipping through it. And I ha- my eyes happened to fall on a page that was discussing his death. It was amazing. It was breathtaking. The trust in God that he had and the desire to see Christ that he had in the hour of his death. And I put the book down and I said to Jennifer, I said, any man who dies like that is worth reading. Anyone who dies like that is worth listening to. Are you preparing for a faithful death? Second, we have the grief. So we have the command, filled with faith, and now we have the grief. Look at verse 1 of chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. I just want to pause over that verse at this point for the grief. Falling on him. By the way, this is not the Hebrew way. Falling on him. On his face. Not on his neck. On his face. Weeping over him. And kissing him. This kind of proximity to the dead. He's right in his father's dead face. This is strong affection. From a loving son. A son Who for 17 years grew up under his father's loving care. A son who had lived without his father for over two decades. But who had been graciously given 17 years of sweet reunion. Joseph had spent the last 17 years walking through life with his dad. Being at his bedside. Seeing him. Conversing with him. This picture of authentic grief reminds us, we have to pause and consider this, it reminds us of the awful thing that death is. It separates us from our bodies. What a separation that is. An earthquake happens between the body and the soul made in the garden to exist always together. Not a disembodied soul but a soul with its body. This is God's will. This was God's design. We are not angels. We are humans, soul and body. And in death, the soul is ripped away from the body. Separates us from the world in which God has placed us. There's a reason why we will receive our bodies again. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. We were made to live on the earth. Not to float in the clouds. God made this as our home. Ripped out of this world. For which we were made. And most grievous of all. It separates us from those we love. Death is a heinous. Horrible thing. Awful. We put the dead out of our sight. Because we know what happens to their bodies. After we put them in the ground. It is a horrible. Awful thing. So here at the end of Genesis. With the death of the third patriarch. We are brought back. To the beginning of Genesis. To the entrance of death. We can't help but every instance of death. We can't help but to be brought back. Brought back. To Genesis chapter 3. From the dust you were taken. And to dust you shall return. In the day that you eat of that tree. You will surely die. You will not surely die. Satan said. And he is a liar from the beginning. The father of lies. We did die and we will die. And here Jacob dies. But this grief over death also points us forward. It points us forward gloriously to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one we talked about last week, who will absorb death in his own body in order to destroy it forever. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is the lion and the lamb? And and we have various ways of thinking about this, but I want you to think about it with regard to death. He is the one who conquers death by absorbing death. And therefore, he is at the same time both lion and lamb. He must be lamb to be lion over death. He must be lion in order that his lambness might satisfy the penalty of death for us all. We are always pointed to the deliverer who took death for us on the cross every time we read of death hebrews 2 14 to 15 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things listen to this this is what christ did that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death you remember crushing the head of the serpent he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The world apart from Christ is enslaved to fear of death. They can act like it's not coming. They can try to extend life. They can fill their faces full of Botox or whatever else. Do whatever it takes to make it appear as though death is not coming. But in the end, death eats them all. It comes, and in the heart of every person is a fear of this devouring beast. Every person, apart from Christ, enslaved to fear of death, whether they say they are or not. How often have you heard an unbeliever? I'm not afraid to die. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Not the believer. It is with hope in this future deliverance that Jacob dies peacefully. He dies peacefully, and as God promised, it is Joseph who closes his eyes. This is really a beautiful picture of death insofar as it can be beautiful. He, he says what he wants to say. He conveys what he needs to convey, and then he lifts his legs up into the bed. He's, he's sat up in the bed for this, and now he, he goes back down, lifts his legs up into the bed, and he dies peacefully with Joseph closing his eyes and even, even more weeping on his face. A peaceful death is the result of a faithful heart. As I said before, we will die according to the trust that we have in God. The fear that takes over the unbeliever's heart can infect the heart of the believer. But insofar as we walk through this life and trust God and grow in grace, Take advantage of the means of grace. We grow in our affections for Christ. We constantly look to him. The author and finisher of our faith. We set our minds on things above. Not on earthly things. But we set our minds on things above where Christ is. In so far as we do those things. Filled with the spirit. Letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We will die with believing hearts. By the grace of God. The grief of a Christian is different. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Listen, Christian, we grieve over those who die. Like everyone else, we grieve. But unlike everyone else, we grieve with hearts that are filled with hope. Do you grieve as others do? You should not. Grieve as one who knows the promises and faithfulness of our great God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Third, as we come to the end of this point, his death, we see the honor. Look at verses 2 and 3. And Joseph commanded his servants... The physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Joseph brings all of his prestige. All of his influence in Egypt. To bear on this moment. He will honor his father in the best way that he can. So he commands. He, remember, is in a position to make commands of people. He is over everyone in Egypt except for Pharaoh. Everyone in Egypt is his servant. And in fact, by now, he has literally purchased everyone in Egypt for the Pharaoh. So he uses that prestige and influence to honor his father. He commands the physicians to embalm him. And one of the things that commentators have pointed out is it is the physicians who embalm Jacob not the priestly embalmers. Now this is significant because in embalming and mummification in Egypt it was highly religious in nature. It was all about the afterlife. And if you the richer you were the more that that process entailed the taking out of the organs. The making sure that the body is soaked properly so that it does not decay in the wrapping up of the body. The poorer you were, the less you were able to do that. But universally it was understood that there needed to be some preparations for the next life. Where your body mattered. It was religious in nature. So it is significant that Joseph does not go to the embalmers, the priests... To embalm his father. He goes to the physicians. This is not what one would expect. This is not for Joseph. A religious act. Associated with Anubis or Osiris. Two of the. Egyptian deities associated with the. Underworld and the afterlife. What follows this 40 days of embalming. Is a period of mourning that takes over. That takes over all of Egypt. It takes 70 days. Now, what's interesting about this period of mourning of of Egypt is that 70 days is just two days shy of the mourning that would have been required for the Pharaoh himself. For 70 days, all of Egypt goes into a period of mourning as though the Pharaoh himself had died. This nomad from Canaan. All of this brings us back to a word we've seen throughout Genesis, favor. God has granted favor in the hearts of others towards his people. And it reminds us, as we've said many times, our God is a God who controls all. The hearts and minds of great kings in the hands of God. The activities of nations and their dispositions towards other nations in the hands of God. Whether it is favor or affliction that we face, the Christian knows one thing for sure. All of it is under God's control. There's not a single law passed, not a single act of persecution that falls out from under the sovereign hand of God. He gives favor and he ordains the persecution of his people for their good and his glory. He is sovereign over it all. And no one can escape his control. And we see that here. The response of Egypt bears witness to that level of sovereignty. Secondly, we go to his burial. So we've looked at his death. Now we come to his burial. Just as we considered three circumstances surrounding Jacob's death, here I want to consider three circumstances surrounding his burial. The request, the reminder, and the return. So let's go through these as we look at this portion of the narrative. First, the request. Look at verses 4 to 6 with me. Verses 4 to 6. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. All of the embalming, all of the national mourning would be no honor at all had Joseph not obeyed his father's command. It it doesn't matter. All of that that doesn't matter at all apart from this obedience to his father's wishes. So here we see Joseph beginning the process of getting his father to Canaan, to the family burying place. Probably because of recent defilement associated with proximity to, to a dead body, Joseph does not go into Pharaoh's presence himself. Maybe as you read through this, you wonder, Here's, here's Joseph. I mean, why he's been right the right-hand man to Pharaoh all this time. Why does he go to Pharaoh's household? And that is probably why. Instead, he makes a request through others who are close to Pharaoh. Ask him if I can do this. He appeals to three things. Jacob made preparations to be buried there. So he says to Pharaoh, look, Uh, My father actually hewed out a a tomb for himself there in that particular place. Jacob also made Joseph swear an oath. So Joseph communicates to Pharaoh, look, I, I swore an oath to my father that I would do this for him. And the Pharaoh would not have taken such an oath lightly. Joseph assures Pharaoh that he will return. In the end, Joseph is Pharaoh's servant. We can't forget that. All throughout this story, Joseph is seen as being entirely in control and, and, and powerful. But we mustn't forget that Joseph still belongs, in a sense, to Pharaoh. He is, he is Pharaoh's servant. It is Pharaoh who took him out of the pit. And so Joseph here assures him that he will return. We see, once again, Joseph's humility. His, his trust in God breeds this Humility, And this is something to consider for us. When we trust God with our lives, it produces in us a, a willingness to be meek with other people. We don't need to assert ourselves. We don't need to make sure we are recognized or noticed or that we have our own autonomy. When we are in Christ, when we recognize what God has done for us, we, it produces within us a humility which allows us to love other people. We see that here. With Joseph and the way he engages with this ruler. It reminds us of Esther in the court of Ahasuerus. It reminds us of Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. All throughout Scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah in the court of Cyrus, all throughout Scripture, we see this humility and meekness towards unbelievers. Secondly, we have the reminder. So we've looked at the request. Now I want you to look at the reminder. Look at verses 7 to 13. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah. We have here the reminder. After Pharaoh grants permission, Joseph wastes no time at all in carrying out his father's wishes. And when he goes to Canaan, he is in He is accompanied by an incredible throng of people. I mean, there's no telling at this point how many there are in the household of Jacob. Remember, it's been 17 years. So they started out with 70. Who knows how many there are now just in the household of Jacob. Then there is the entirety of the Egyptian Elites, notice it's not just as though Pharaoh says, here, take my chief whatever and this chief and and they can go with you as as a representation of the Egyptian throne. No, no, no. All the elites of Egypt go with Joseph and his family up to Canaan to bury this man. This is an incredible entourage of the elites of society. And even more, It is accompanied by a great military force. There are chariots and horsemen. Same kind of picture of what will fall into the Red Sea later on. But we have the the chariots and the horsemen. These are probably for the purposes of protecting. Making sure there's security for this great group of people going out to a funeral. You've never seen a funeral procession like this. This is a as it says in verse 9, a very great company. And then verse 10, with a very great and grievous lamentation. And what happens in the land of Canaan as this great throng of people is coming through is so surprising. It's so awe-inspiring, so amazing, that the Canaanites take notice and they actually name a place after it. When the large group stops to observe seven days of mourning, the Canaanites give the place a new name: the Morning of Egypt. <laughs> Notice that it's not called the Morning of this group of people who are with the Egyptians. Joseph and his family are so intertwined that, that from the Canaanites' perspective, this is an Egyptian morning—a morning of this great empire, this great nation. So what's the significance of all of this? Why have I treated this under the point, the reminder? Why the reminder? Two things. Two reminders. First, this is a reminder of the Exodus. Commentators call this a rehearsal. This is a little bit of a an Exodus rehearsal. Here we have the people of God coming up out of Egypt, and they are going to Canaan. An event like this, listen to this, listen to this, an event like this would have been seared in the minds of Jacob's descendants. This would have been quite the spectacle And it would have been so seared in the minds of of these descendants of Jacob that it would have been a preparatory force for the next 400 years. This was part of their story. Just as Jacob went to Canaan, they too will one day as well. But not yet, not yet. 400 years of slavery and affliction. They needed to be prepared for what was to come soon. And so God took them out of Egypt, brought them to Canaan as a rehearsal, as a picture, as a reminder of what he promised to do. Second reminder is, concerns the significance of Jacob and his family. Notice this. This is beautiful. Jacob is the focus. This one man. This one body is surrounded by the nations, if you will. This one grandson of a traveling nomad from Mesopotamia is now receiving all this attention. What's that a reminder of? If the coming up out of Egypt, going into Canaan is a reminder of the Exodus and the promise that God would bring them up and out and give them that land, what is this a reminder of? And I think what it points to is a future descendant who would have the honor and the attention of the entire human race. One man. One man. And all the eyes of the world would be on him. And that man is Christ Jesus. Finally, this morning, as we finish up, third, the return. One verse left to cover here, verse 14. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Here I want to make one simple point. They returned to Egypt. Well, okay, fine. That's just a logistical detail. No, that one verse is packed with richness. They return to Egypt? They don't stay in Canaan. You know, the famine is over. It's been over for a while. There's no more famine in the land of Canaan, where they came from, where they grew up. This would be a great time to, hey, let's leave some guys behind. Let's send the rest back. Joseph, you have to go back. You're, you're, you, know, you've, you told him you're going back. But let's leave some behind here in Canaan little resettlement force. And you guys go back. Get our kids. Because we do want to bring them with us. We want our children. Go back and get our children and our livestock. You guys go back. Joseph, you go back. And we're going to stay here. What a great opportunity to resettle. There's not even a hint of that in this verse. There's not even a hint of that in this text. That's not what happens. It is not yet time to be in Canaan. Listen to this, people of God, listen. They must take God's path to their destination, not their own way, God's way. And that path would involve much. Affliction, but it would be affliction followed by redemption. And that is what God calls us to in this life. We do not take the path of the crown without passing through the cross. This is the life that God has called us to as believers. We must go His way. We must pass faithfully first through this life where there are persecutions and there will be much mortification of the flesh and much sacrifice and much dying in community to self. This is the way, the path to the celestial city. Pilgrim's Progress. There's a scene where Christian is on the path. Much hardship. He's facing lions coming at him. He's fallen into this big puddle of mud. That he can barely get out of. He's facing many temptations. Many trials. Going through the valley of the shadow of death. And at one point he's walking along this path. This is God's path for him. This is the way. And this man just kind of suddenly and surprisingly climbs over the wall and throws himself onto the path. He doesn't go through the gate. He throws himself onto the path over the wall. He scales the wall. Of course, he can't do that. He has to go through the gate. And he has to stay on the path of the way. That is what God calls us to do. Like these sons of Jacob, they must go back to Egypt. They must be in Egypt, but God will deliver them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together to worship, to sing, to pray, to preach and listen to your word and it's time to affirm our faith and now to participate in the Lord's Supper. We thank you, Father, for the church. We thank you that we've been grafted in to your people as Gentiles. We are not part of the natural olive tree, but we've been grafted in by your grace. Let us not be a proud bunch of Gentiles, as Paul says in Romans 11. But let us walk in humility and gratitude for your mercy. That those of us who were not a people have now become a people. That those of us whose ancestors were godless worshipers of pagan idols. That we were turned from that way of life to Christ. The seed of Abraham. The lion of the tribe of Judah the Son of David, the Christ, our King. Help us, Lord, to walk your path in faithfulness of heart. And I pray for all of us in this room right now that by your grace we would die well as a witness to your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.